Uh, will you take your Bibles, please, and turn to Ephesians chapter 4? Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 to 13. Ephesians 4, 11 to 13. Ephesians 4, 11 to 13. I remind you that this is the word of God. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service or ministry as the old King James says to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure and the statue which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Father, may your word accomplish your purpose in our lives this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. This message is going to be in two parts. And realizing that, I decided in studying that I would just do the first part this morning and not try to rush through and do the entire message in uh, the time allotted to me at this time. So I will um, finish this next Sunday because it is a rich, rich passage. It is full of meaning for us. It is full of instructions for us. It reveals to us what the church is really all about. And not simply, well, it is not at all, not simply. It's not a location we come to, as we shall see in a few minutes. When the present day uh, Christian gentleman or, or lady talks about church growth, they immediately think of numbers. They will say, how big is your church? And this idea of how big is your church or how large is your church or we identify people with the size of their church has distorted the true biblical idea of what the church is. For example, if someone says, are you in the ministry? I say, no, I'm not a pastor. And yet, when we think of the ministry, the Bible does not think of a position. When we think of the ministry, the Bible speaks of a function that is actually done by the body of Christ. As we shall see see in a few minutes. So, I remember when I was in college, in, in graduate school, the professor made a statement about the fact that God has not called us to be successful, but that God has called us to be faithful. And so I was sitting there listening to how he was going to unpack that, that statement. And when he was finished, I, I said to him, Sir, I, I appreciate what you have just said about God has not called us to be successful, but to be faithful. I said, then can you please explain to me 
why when we have a speaker for a conference, we usually identify him by how many books he has written and how large is his church. I, I tell you, I was glad I was finished most of my studies. He said, you know, Winston, I never thought of that. <laughs> I, I, I wasn't trying to be smart. What I was saying, even though he said that, yet when we think of churches, we usually think of the size. I spent about an hour on the phone last night with a young student from another state. And, and he was asking me questions about what is a pastor like in a rural church? Now, it's not in a rural church, you know, that's a... I have been, been in the big city of Toronto, and I'm in a rural church now. <laughs> and I, I remind him of the words of G. Campbell Morgan, the wonderful Bible scholar who has affected my life with his, with his writings. He was pastoring a small church outside London, England. And after the death of the well-known Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones at Metropolitan Chapel in, in, uh, in London, Campbell Morgan was asked to, to be the pastor of uh, Westminster Chapel, I mean, Westminster Chapel, not Metropolitan, West, Westminster. So when Campbell Morgan accepted the call from Westminster, someone said to him, how do you feel now that you're going to be the pastor of a large church having been the pastor of a small church for so long. And I love his answer. I feel exactly as I felt then because the one I'm serving now was the, word, the one I served then. But we don't have that concept. We, we live in a world that moves so fast. Uh, you know, this past week I, I was watching a, a, a piece of uh, the news that Apple has just put out a new iPod. And, and, and this one can really, really do stuff. It can move faster than the one that could move so fast before. And they showed the, the, the difference on the screen, what was taking place. And this is the kind of world we live in. And we, we, we tend to think that when it comes to the church, this is precisely what we should be like. That, that, that we should be ready for instant change so that, that we do the right thing so that within two weeks we can say our church grew from, from 50 people to 150 people. And, and, and then we can write a book about it. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, when the Bible speaks of church growth, it speaks about people growing, not how many people are there. And we're going to look at this this morning because it includes you and me. That when we talk about the, the church growth, we're talking about what is happening to the people who are the church. Not to the building where the church comes. And so in, in Ephesians 4, 7 to 11, Paul says that when Jesus Christ died and was buried and rose again and he was ascended, he took captives. And, 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 and some have said, 
it, it means that his enemies were made captive. That may be true. But those who were under their control, he took men. This is a generic word for people. And he gave them gifts. And whenever we think of a gift, we think in terms of something that, is, that we, can, we can open. Open the package and, and look at it. And we shall see that the gifts he's talking about are people. People. We shall see how they are in, in a few minutes. And I think it's important that you understand that. Because sometimes we think that the only gifted person is in a church is the one who stands and speaks to the people. But that's not what the Bible says. He said, to each one of us, a gift has been given. To each one of us. Everybody, every true believer has a gift that has been bestowed upon him or her by the head of the church, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul then is going to unpack for us what this gift is. I call it provisions. But when I use that, I use it interchangeably with the word gift. Look at what he does first of all. He gives us a description of the gift. But before he gives us this description, he shows us who actually provides the gift. Look at verse 11 if you please. And he gave some. I want you to just bear with me for a minute. He gave some. The gifts that we're talking about, my friends, are not self-generated. They're not something we go to school to study so that we can come back and say, I received this while I was at school. He gave some. It is the responsibility, the prerogative of Christ who is the head of the church to give the provision to the church in order that the church might be what he wants it to be. <laughs> When I think of that, I, I, I you know, wouldn't, wouldn't I love to, to play the violin or play the piano or, uh, you know, one of those many things that I, I remember when I was in college, I wanted to play the piano. I went to this very professional teacher and I said, I would like to play the piano. And she looked right in my face and said, you're too old. That killed it right away. Right away. I remember when I was in Bly, Oregon, as a, as a student pastor. You know, in Bly, everything takes place within 30 seconds after that. Ain't much there. <laughs> and in the afternoon, you know, you don't even hear a truck passing through Bly. And one, sun, one, one afternoon, I remember sitting at the piano and, and, and with one finger entertaining myself. How I wish I could have played the piano and just, just sing songs to myself. But God didn't give me that gift. And, and, and you know what, at first I, I was annoyed at, at this lady for saying that. But, but see, if, if God had given me that gift, I would not be doing what God really wants me to do. The gifts that he gives, you will see in a few minutes. He gives as he designs those gifts to be with the people he wants to have those gifts so that when we come together as a body, those gifts will begin to work not in competition with one another, but in concert with one another. The tragedy of the present day church 
is that most of our churches are known for its conflicts. Churches make headlines not because of how beautifully they work together, but what is taking place that is actually causing the church to split. And, 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 and if, we, if we could see that the provider of the gifts in the church is not the pastor, not the deacons, not the leaders, but Christ who is himself the head of the church, so that each gift that you and I have, we become accountable to him for the use of those gifts, of that gift. He's the provider. Now look at the provision. Look at the provision. The first thing we see in the provision of the gifts is that they are not all alike. Look at what it says. He gave some, not all. Diversity, my friends, is the uniqueness of the Christian church that in a diversity of coming together, it is possible for people who come from different backgrounds, different educational positions, different financial positions, to be able to come together and sit as one. Diversity. I, I, I was listening to a little bit of the news this morning, and, and, and you, might, you might find this humorous, as I did, and you may laugh if you want because it is funny. The United Nations is at this moment investigating the voting apparatus of South Carolina and Texas. The United Nation. The United Nation has what is known as a committee for integrity. <laughs> That's a joke. <laughs> On this committee that is investigating voting ways in the United States are Syria, <laughs> Iraq. I'm not making this up, friends. What I'm getting at, you see, what, what a mockery that is. But when the church talks about diversity, it is talking about people who have experienced the grace of God, bringing them together and putting their differences at the cross where their differences become redeemed so that they use those differences to come together. The United States is known for that great little phrase that was was exercised by the founding fathers, e pluribus unum, the crest. I don't know if you've ever seen the crest. They don't use that so much, but the crest is made up of, of, of these, these different designs, rows for England, thistles for Scotland, harp for Ireland, fleur de lis for France, I love that, lion for Holland, and the imperial two-headed eagle for Germany. And under that is e pluribus unum. Plurality into one. This country lived and died and sent men and women to go to fight to preserve this diversity in unity. And it is being disintegrated right now. And the only place where it is possible for diversity to exercise itself in unity is the church. Is the church. 
The UN has nothing that looks like that. Communists on the Wall Street have nothing that looks like that. The only place where God looks down to see diversity in unity is where you and I are sitting right now. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? If I may use the human term, how disappointed God must feel when he sees conflict and fights and pastors and people in conflict with one another, where we now make jokes even as Christians that the church would be a good place if it wasn't for people. That is a tragedy, my dear friends. That's a tragedy. Because God has placed the church in the midst of a darkened universe to be its light, to show how God is able to take people from different backgrounds, save them, and cause them to sit with one another and work for one cause, and that is the glory of God. The apex, then, of this this is true not only in heaven, where Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three persons, one God, work together for the redemptive purposes of God. The very same thing is call upon you, upon me, to so live in this world in which we live. I, I, I don't want to bring up so many of the, the churches that are falling apart today because I'm suggesting to you that churches have become more interested in success than they are in faithfulness. So that's diversity. Now he gives us the description, and I'm going to run through this pretty fast. He said, he has given to some, not all. So not all are what the others may be. No, there are other passages dealing with gifts and so on, but this one is talking primarily about the gift of people. Not positions, not offices, but officers. Verse 11, and he gave some to be apostles. This is the fundamental gift, and it refers to those who were eyewitnesses of the life and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Later on, the word became that which is a missionary, someone who goes to a place where to, to make the gospel known. An apostle, in, in, in the technical sense, we don't have apostles today. Apostles are people who actually, as you, you can read for yourself, in 1 Corinthians 15, apostles are those who were eyewitnesses of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2.20 and 3.5 will give you an understanding of this. These were the unique ones. You know that Jesus had many disciples, but he had 12 apostles. So they are unique. They are the ones upon whom the ministry of the church was given. So the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles. Not there, but what they proclaim. Secondly, he gave some to be prophets. Now prophets could be like a teacher. Prophets were those who, who could take the, 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 the information given in the gospel and, and teach it and explain it. And go to the depth. Uh, prophets are not 
foretelling. As in the Old Testament, they are telling forth. So this morning, in a sense, I am acting as a prophet because I am telling forth what has already been written. I'm taking what God has revealed and explaining it to you. That's what a prophet does. The Old Testament prophet used to speak about things that were to take place. I speak of things that God has given and he's making known to us. You will find the scripture in 1 Corinthians 12, 24. Paul is speaking about the difference between someone who tells forth and someone who speaks in a foreign tongue. If you come into a church, says Paul, and someone hears someone speaking in some foreign tongues, they'll say those people are mad. But if they prophesy, their hearts will be revealed as to what God is saying to them. And so you will find the foretelling and the foretelling to be quite different. One has the gospel given to them in Revelation. One has the responsibility to explain the gospel. That's what the prophet does. Thirdly, an evangelist. I I used to love this. (laughs) When I was finishing my studies in the first school I attended, I wanted to be an evangelist. And I'll tell you why. You will laugh. I didn't want to be a pastor. I wanted to be an evangelist. You know why? An evangelist goes in, tell the people what's wrong with them, and leave the pastor to take care of it. <laughs> I thought, there is no way I want to be, to be dealing with people. And <laughs> how gracious God is. Uh, you know, God is a mastermind. Let, let me just give you an example. God took Joseph, trained him in the wilderness to work in a palace. He took Moses, trained him in a palace to work in the wilderness. That's the uniqueness of God's sovereign choice. So, so an evangelist, whenever we think of this word evangelist, immediately we think about Billy Graham. And, and, and rightly so, because he has been God's spokesman. But my friends, this is not talking simply of a professional individual. He's talking about individuals. So that when you go to your, your teacher's meeting, or when you go to your neighbor's, and you talk with them about the gospel, not even about your testimony, but you tell them that Jesus died for me, and therefore I am a Christian, you become an evangelist. You share the gospel with people at every opportunity you get. And let me suggest to you that even the pastor has that responsibility. For Paul talking to Timothy, in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 5, he said to Timothy the pastor, do the work of an evangelist. You are to speak about peop- uh, to people about Jesus Christ. The last one is the pastor-teacher. Some people divide this. I I don't necessarily. But the pastor-teacher, here is what the pastor does. The pastor sits with the people and he gets to know them. He rejoices with them. He corrects them. He admonishes them. You see why I didn't want to be one? (laughs) 
Because, because what he has to do, like a mother that nurses a child and a father that corrects his children, that's what a pastor is supposed to do. A pastor, my friends, is not someone who stands up and tells people what to do. In fact, Paul was so convinced, convinced about what he was supposed to do, he said, follow me as I follow Christ. So the pastor becomes a model so that he's able to say to the people, this is what God wants you to do, my brother. This is what God has called you to be, my sister. This is what you're supposed to be doing in your home, at work. This is what you're supposed to be in the church. God has gifted you so that you are able to do this, to do that, to assist here, to give here, to sacrifice there, whatever the cost might be. That's what a pastor does. That's what a pastor does. Someone has said some pastors love to sit in their offices and then take the tunnel to the pulpit on Sunday, and you never see them again. That's not what a pastor is, friends. The word, the word for pastor is shepherd. And as I understand it, a shepherd is one who knows the sheep. A shepherd is one who cares for the sheep. A shepherd is one who will, as Phil Keller says in his book, a shepherd looks at the 23rd Psalm, at times when, when a shepherd is concerned about a sheep, he will, he will sit at the gate to make sure that the wolves will not come in. Let me suggest to you that a pastor's job is not an easy job. This is no complaining on my part. It is simply this, that if a pastor is to do the work that God has called him to do, it will be costly. It will be costly. We'll probably develop that some, some more because I'm not talking about myself. I'm talking about how God has gifted men to be in that position. I remember, I remember the first time I went to, to hear Billy Graham speak. And I, and I actually, the first time I went to hear him speak was, was in Portland. The crusade back in, back in the 60s. And he got up to speak. And then the second time I went to hear him speak was in Edmonton, Alberta. And then the third and the fourth time in Toronto. And almost every time he spoke on the same passage. John 3.16. And I thought, I thought he was going to give me an exposition. I wanted to hear what the Greek and the Aramaic and what the Hebrew said. Then I realized, Winston, he is God's voice to clarion the gospel. And I tell you that verse 16 of John 3 has been God's voice to the world through this man. No matter where he goes, he let it be known that we are sinners and that we need Christ to be born again. And that when we're, I mean, I could not do that. I, I will get in and I will go, I will go to, the, to the text and deal with the issues in the text. But see, I am a pastor. He's an evangelist. But we work together for the same purpose. 
so that one does not say, I wish I was an evangelist, I were an evangelist, or I wish I were a pastor. In fact, do you know that Billy Graham applied to become the pastor of a church and they rejected him? So I want you to see the diversity in the gifts, the provisions he has made. That the church is not a people who are in competition. I want to be this, I want to do this. No, friends. Each of us realizing that God has given us a, a specific gift is to be used in the church. And by the way, may I say this about our gifts? Your gift is not for your work. You may use it if you're allowed to, but your gift is for the church. Your gift is for the body of Christ. And sometimes we, 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 we get into tremendous difficulties because we think that people at our work, well, they are not, they are not the church. So please, sometimes if you can't use your gift where you work, just realize that you're in a different place than the church. I want you to see then, look at verse 12. And I want you to see the, the, what, the design for the gift. The design for the gift. I, take, take a minute, look at that little word, that little connecting word, for, for, purpose clause. The reason he has given these men, these gifts, to people in the church. These are among the gifts he has given. The pastors, the teachers, the evangelists. These are, these are some of the gifts. But he has gifted everybody. No one is, is allowed. So what, is the, what are the gifts for? Look at it, please. It is for a purpose. It is, it is explaining why, why a thing is done as a gift, as a provision to the church. Pastors are not dictators. Evangelists are not actors. They are instruments through which God is serving the church to make the church what it ought to be. Therefore, three reasons that Paul gives for the gifts that God has given. First of all, it is for the equipping of the saints. I love this. I sat at my desk on Thursday as I was studying and I thought, isn't it interesting? All of a sudden, Paul is now focusing upon saints. He was talking about gifts. And what are those gifts for? Those gifts are for the saints. You. If you are a believer, you are a saint. And the gifts that God given is for you. I, I want you to see this. As I, I, I will just take the next few minutes and I'll close with this. The word equipped is used in Matthew 4 where the disciples are seen mending their nets. And the word has two main purposes. The one is to mend something that has been broken. The other part of this word is to cause something to grow and something to produce. So the gifts that God has given to the church is so the church would take care of whatever goes wrong within its membership. But it is also to help the church to grow, to mature, in what it is doing. Huh. It's a great word. 
Sometimes we come across certain things that needs correction in the church. Please listen, friends. Those things that need corrections are not to be cared for by a court. The church today is just full of people suing one another. The Bible says that is wrong. The church should have in the gifts that God has given when something goes wrong, it should be able to come together with, with deep, deep conviction and commitment to the person or persons. And what we want is not to show who was right or who was wrong, but what we want is for the net to be mended so that it can produce the purpose for which it was given in the first place. That's what we want to do. I want to end with an illustration. In Genesis chapter 2, we are told in verses 8 to 15, God made the most beautiful garden the eyes of human beings had ever seen. In fact, we have never seen it. Because when Adam and Eve sinned, they were kicked out of the garden. So we have to be, we have to re-enter, we have to regain paradise again one of these days. But in that garden, when you read it, you cannot begin to imagine the beauty, the symmetry, listening to the waters flowing. I mean, it was just something of exquisite beauty. Yet, in verse 15, we read this. And God took Adam to the garden and said to him, Keep the garden. Dress it. Now, isn't that amazing? If this is beautiful, and having everything that is necessary, why does, why does Adam have to dress it? Why does he have to keep it? You see, my friends, when you became a Christian, when I became a Christian, God made us saints like that, by position. And now, just like that garden, Adam, God, created a garden with absolute beauty, with things that absolute commitment to him can make more beautiful. Adam was given the privilege of taking what God had made. And God said, I'm going to give you the capacity to enhance the beauty of this. In the same way, the church has a lot of broken people in it. People who are saved. People who, who, who are disappointing. People who are failing. And, and, and God says, the pastor is supposed to take those people and help them to come to become what God has called them to be so that they will be and they will be becoming what they are. Their beauty will come out as we dress them and as we keep them. The word keep is to prevent intrusion. The word dress is to make beautiful. And my friends, this is my commitment to you. That as your pastor, I am here to dress you spiritually and to keep you spiritually and to make sure that when you come together and I speak to you, 
and I share with you, and I, I, I meet you. <laughs> the other day I was, I was at that famous center for Christians called Walmart, and, uh, <laughs> and I was walking through, and I said hello to one of our people. A few hours later, I was at Walmart, <laughs> and the same person said hello to me, and she said, we've got to stop meeting like this. <laughs> what am I getting at, friends? That whether it is here or there, my passion for you is that I'm either keeping or dressing. Keeping or dressing. Because God has a lot more for you than simply to sit in a church and be fed and then go home and forget it. He wants you to be a husband in your home that's dressed and then to become a keeper. He wants you to be a wife that dresses her home and to become a keeper. He wants you to be a teenager that dresses one, one another to be able to say to them, this is what God has called you to be. Can I pray for you so that? See, that's what it means to dress. It means that there are areas that are spiritually naked and they must be dressed. And God said to Adam, dress the garden. And he says to me, dress the body. Dress the body of Christ. Make sure that their minds are clean. Make sure that their, their homes glorify God. You see why, why I didn't want to be a pastor? But I want you to know, dear friends, having said that, I wouldn't be caught dead doing anything else. I want you to know that. This is no complaining. This is the high calling that God has not only for me as a pastor, but for you as a congregation. That later on, the end of this message will be so that you are able to minister to one another. Wow. That you become a dresser. You become a keeper. And that the body of Christ grows because you are being dressed. And you are being kept. May God make us what he has redeemed us to be. Having gifted us with different means to minister to one another, cause us to do so. Let us pray. Oh, gracious God, what a wonderful privilege to be a part of the family of God. Oh, forgive us when the church has become a burden. Forgive us when we have been wanting to be fed without feeding, when we have been wanting to dress without dressing. Oh, Father, change that attitude. May we see that church growth is not how many, but who. Help us to understand that God is not looking at how big we're growing, but that we're growing in grace. May this be, Lord, the characteristic of Sotoville Evangelical Church, a body of people seeking nothing but the glory of God, serving one another, and the effects are seen and heard beyond its borders to the glory of God in Christ's name. Amen.